Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I'm looking forward to the next couple of months and getting back into the swing of things with this podcast. I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for all of the support that you've given my podcast over the years. It's hard to believe that I started this in February of 2015. Uh, It's been a great journey and I look forward to uh, getting more information to you guys. I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com and remind you guys that the Black Friday sale actually is starting early on November 12th. There's tons of great gear that's 60% off at the Go Hunt gear shop. Go to GoHunt.com. Also, remember with this Black Friday sale, when you sign up for Insider, you're going to get $100 off to spend at the Go Hunt gear shop. That's just when you sign up for Insider. If you want the Explorer, you get $50 to spend in the Go Hunt gear shop. Go to GoHunt.com. Use the J. Scott promo code. Uh, Guys, I want to thank Go Hunt for their sponsorship. I want to thank you guys for supporting Go Hunt. Uh, They've been a a loyal supporter of mine from the beginning, so go check them out. I also want to thank Kuyu.com. Kuyu is the ultralight hunting gear that I've been wearing since 2010. Uh, Great ultralight hunting gear. Uh, They've got three camo patterns from the Velo to the Verde to the Vias. Uh, they've got packs. They've got all sorts of great lightweight gear. Go to kuyu.com to order. It's a direct-to-consumer website. You can go to kuyu.com to order the gear there. I also want to thank phonescope.com. Use the jscott23 promo code for a 10% discount. Phonescope is the digiscoping device that I use on my iPhone uh, to capture some of the videos and photos that you see on my Instagram account. And then I'd also like to thank Lathrop and Sons and remind you that they're doing a mountain hunt boot giveaway and a custom synergy footbed giveaway all you have to do to enter is go to lathropandsons.com click on the link there to enter into the giveaway and you can be entered into that drawing give james and Stephen a call if you want to discuss and talk to them about their three boots they basically have the encompass the mountain hunter and the elite boot plus their custom synergy footbeds i've been wearing them uh, now for over a year and just absolutely love their boots you there's two ways to get hold of them boots at lathropandsons.com or you can call them directly call james call Stephen directly they're two brothers 618-544 8782. Guys, let's get right to these episodes. If you'd like to send me a message, you can go to my Instagram account, which is at jscottoutdoors. You can send me an email, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. God bless and thanks for your support. Devin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. That's awesome, buddy. I had to give you a little bit of a plug there going to U of A, uh, being an ASU grad myself. Uh, I've got uh, family members that went to U of A and, and other family members that went to ASU, and it's always a, a great rivalry, uh, sometimes more heated than, than some during football season, but uh, right. always nice. And anybody from the state of Arizona, in my mind, is a, is, a, is a good person. So I'm glad to have you on the show today and uh, look forward to talking to you and picking your brain a little bit about Coos Deer. For sure, for sure. Devin, uh, why don't you give me a little bit of a background on your love for coos deer and maybe when you started hunting them and when you knew the passion for coos deer, you know, burned through your veins. 
Uh, you know, growing up, my my dad is a big time mule deer fanatic. Um, I grew up in St. Johns, Arizona, north of Springerville there, and um, uh, I guess my first taste of coos deer, I think I was in eighth grade, and my dad and I drew a 27 late coos deer hunt. Um, I shot like a 65, 70 inch buck on that hunt, and um, but my passion really didn't start until I moved down to Tucson to go to college, and um, did a couple years of some heavy duty school, and then uh, I actually put in for Unit 33 and drew a, a late trophy hunt there in 33, and that's really where it kind of started. Went out on a couple scouting trips and just was blown away by the the numbers of deer that I could see down there versus hunting mule deer up around St. John's and the the unit twos and stuff you know we go weeks at a time without even seeing a deer up there so that's kind of when my my I guess I got bit by the coos deer bug was on that for that trophy hunt while I was in college and ever since then that's all I can really think about that's awesome. Yeah, I know once you get bitten by the coos deer bug, uh, you know, it, it, it's something for me that, that I find myself, you know, even in the off season, just thinking about, you know, this buck or that buck or, you know, thinking about a certain area that I want to go into. And, you know, my wife will say, what are you thinking about? And then she just smiles and shakes her head and walks off because she knows I'm dreaming about some big coos buck or thinking about some hunt that I'd been on. And, uh, it's it's funny running into different coos deer hunters. It seems like we all have that same passion, and hunters in general. I think you know whether it's coos deer, mule deer, elk, whatever sheep, whatever you're passionate about. Um, tell me a little bit about this 126 inch three by three with eye guards that you shot. Uh, uh, when it was, and uh, you know maybe maybe some of the details of the buck. Just a gorgeous buck. Um. I killed that buck in 2012. Um, I, I found him this, the same year that that I killed him, so I, I don't have a you know a, a ton of history of him. I I found him when he was just starting to grow there and uh, kept tabs on him for a, a couple months. Um, I I did try and shoot him with my bow. I actually missed him twice with my bow. Um, was probably out out of a tree stand, Devin, or, or spot and no, stalk. Spot and stalking him. Um, first shot was a little bit of a long poke, seventy-two yards, I think, and you know he was broadside. Didn't know I was there, calm as could be, and he string jumped on me. I missed him by maybe an inch over the top of his back. And uh, second shot was a chip shot, like thirty-eight yards, and I clipped a little branch and. I, I don't really know what happened on that one. <laughs> so you actually had a rifle tag that year, but the way Arizona works is we can actually hunt with a bow as long as your rifle hunt hasn't come and you haven't harvested. So you tried to shoot them, obviously, with the velvet on, uh, and, and then you ended up having a rifle tag a couple months later? I did, yeah. And um, tell me about the transition from... Uh, you know, his summer grounds to, to winter grounds or, 
if if you know if he stayed fairly local, uh, maybe tell me about how you were feeling from the time you missed him and then having to wait until your rifle season was there. Did you go in and penetrate his country, or did you leave him alone? Or give me kind of the background on that. Well, I, I guess it all started when when I found him. I um, I actually hung a, a motion camera in a saddle, um, you know, early on in the season. And I only got, I think, two different sets of pictures of him on there, you know, real early when he was just nubbing out and then uh, another photo when he was developing pretty good and I knew from the get-go he was going to be uh, one of the biggest bucks I'd ever seen. Um, so I basically just started bisecting or separating out the, the chunk of country in there and just, you know, by process of elimination started checking stuff off where, uh, where I didn't see him until I eventually found him, found him about a mile or so away from where I got those pictures of him on that camera. And after I actually laid eyes on him, he lived right there within, uh, I would say 500 yard by 500 yard, this one little knob he was on there day, night, every day, all the time. Never, never moved from there ever. So, so before you go any further, you you first saw him with the trail camera, and they must have been random pictures from him, maybe going to water or or just a moving pattern. But then you could almost throw a blanket around a 500 yard square from then on. Once you actually found him, what what caused him to be in that saddle? to get those photos taken of what what is your speculation of those photos um and then talk to me a little bit about watching him um in, in that small area you know this is this has been a subject of mine that i've really been trying to figure out is is why i originally got those pictures of him down there if you know he while i was watching him over the course of a couple months he never went down there that I know of. Of course, I wasn't watching him every single day, but, you know, he was always on that knob somewhere. Um, I, over the last bit of a while running motion cameras, I find more often than not when, when these bucks are in velvet and, and growing, they tend to go for weird random walks, and I can't, I can't figure it out yet. I don't know what it is. I got a Another buck that I was watching the last couple years, the first time I got a picture of him was two miles from where he ended up, you know, kind of where I considered his home range. I got pictures of him two miles away from there. And other bucks, you know, I I don't seem to notice that they go on those walks. It's kind of a, I don't know, in, in my group of my little hunting group of guys we we just say they go for walks random walks when they're in that early velvet stage growing you know i, I it's funny you mentioned that um i don't run a lot of trail cameras actually i don't run any trail cameras but i do have buddies that do and i have heard them also talk about these walkabouts and what's interesting is a lot of these walkabouts tend to be some of these bigger bucks and I remember some other buddies of mine that run quite a bit of cameras and 
uh, they talk about bucks that you know are very very patternable very very habitual and then all of a sudden uh, they go on a walkabout and they're gone for you know a week or so and then all of a sudden they're right back in there so I mean maybe it's a mystery we'll never find out um, so recapping what you said you first got picture of this 126 inch buck when he was just nubbing out what was it about him that you knew he was a giant? I mean, was he wide, or what? What? What was it with his characteristic that you just could tell he was going to be a big buck? Just the well, a couple factors is his body size. He was a huge-bodied buck, one of the biggest-bodied bucks I've ever been had my hands on. Just a giant chest. Um, you know, his back hips looked real small and a big head on him and you know just had mass had some spread going you know the points were real heavy coming off and um you know it, you could just tell that he was going to be something special even early on as as early as that was were you able to after you shot him were you able to age him at all or or guess his age or and do you think he was an old old buck or do you think he was just had super genetics and was just the you know Shaquille O'Neal of coos deer and and just had everything going on in the right spots my my father actually sent one of his teeth away and and we got him aged came back that he was 5 years old so i mean not an old buck no. um by any means so obviously super super genetics and just uh you know the 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 anomaly of coos deer mm -hmm. Devin, in your experience, how much do you think, you know, do you think that there's some bucks that will never be 100 inches and then all of a sudden you'll just have one that just everything lines up and, you know, by the time he's a three-year-old, he's a, you know, 105-inch deer? How much of that do you think uh, plays in there? Um, I mean, I, I do. There's, you know, there's the, the superior genetic deer and there's deer that are, you know, always going to be a 70-inch two-point. It just, uh, yeah. you know, I've I've got multiple deer that we've watched year in and year out, and we see them over and over and over and over again. And, you know, I've had deer that, that had the makings that I thought, you know, they got good eye guards, good G2s, good main beam, good G3s, and you look at them, you go, man, I can't can't wait to see what that deer looks like next year and then they they get to a certain point and they just stop um meaning that you know say they turn you know they're into a hundred inch and you're thinking well if i just let him go what will he be next year you'll think he'll be 107 and then you let him go and you think oh he's going to blow up 114 115 but he just stays that you know 105 106 inch he never goes ahead and blows up you see that quite a bit i, I do yep yeah. multiple instances of of that happening where it, you know you got a hundred hundred and five it, it looks good he's got good points and you think man next year what is that thing going to be and go back and look at him and he's almost identical and then for you know two or three years he kind of stays stays that same size so yeah. there, there's definitely bucks that are you know stuck in a in a mold and that's what they're going to be and there's other bucks that you know could put on five ten thirty inches you you just never know yeah sure okay so 
You've missed him a couple times in the velvet archery. Now you're keeping an eye on the buck. He's staying in a small, tight area. He's on the same knob. How many times did you have visual of the buck between, say, the end of the archery season and, and before you shot him? How, how many like times did you actually see him? Ooh, I, I don't even know. I can't. I, I didn't ever keep track. Um, like 10, 20, 30 times? Well, August, September, you know, the end of August, beginning of, beginning of September was when I missed him with my bow. And uh, I actually had to go take, I had booked a moose hunt for my wife, so we had to leave with a week left of the archery season. And uh, came back and went in there and found him. So two months of looking, you know, two or three times a week, I was up there looking for him, and I saw him just about every time. So quite, quite a bit of time I spent watching him. And then the, the the tag that you had drawn, uh, which season did you draw, Devin? I had the early October hunt. Talk to me a little bit about the the different seasons, and you. I, I'm betting that you're probably a proponent of those early seasons for a guy like you that has a bunch of time to scout. Um, talk to me about the benefits of that hunt um, as you see it. Uh, I mean, exactly what you said. You know, finding finding these big deer, it takes a lot of work. And with as many tags as there are issued in our state, my feeling is when I find a deer that I am interested in harvesting, I really want to have the, the earliest crack at, at getting to that deer. Um... And the October hunt really lends itself to that because the deer are still grouped up with other bucks. If if they have deer that they hang out with, they're in a pretty stable pattern doing the same thing day in and day out. You know, they might have multiple bedding areas or places that they go that's kind of random, but the general theme behind their habits stays the same that type of year. So for me, really, it's it's a key time to be able to locate, pattern, relocate, and and be sitting there on that first hunt in position to be able to take that deer if if that's what you want to do. Um, Wouldn't you agree that a lot of people that don't have the time to scout like maybe you and I do, wouldn't you think that you know sometimes those late November. Or, or now they're kind of the first part of December, they have a big general hunt, and then even like the December, what they call the premium tags that, you know, are pre-rut, you know, uh, say the 15th through the end of the month of December, those are great hunts for guys that don't have time to scout because typically the weather's cooler and they get a little bit more deer activity. Um, would you agree with that? I, I do, for sure. Um, yeah. You know, you talked about the weather. I mean, our... These these deer, you know, you can find them from 8,000 feet down to the desert floor. Um, majority of our tags, I would say, are in the desert. So your conditions, depending on where you fall in the year, definitely dictate the amount of deer movement you're going to see. Those early October hunts, you know, sometimes you're limited to 
30 minutes in the morning and evening of, of good deer movement. Um, the later you go, obviously we start getting into December, you know, late November, early December, you might pick up on a, on a little bit of pre-rut activity there. Um, you know, the last couple years I've really seemed to notice that the rut with these little whitetail is seems to get later and later and later that that trophy december tag that i had in in college my first tag down in the desert there by tucson um you know i remember going out on the 15th and and seeing three or four bucks that were pretty heavy in with the does on the 15th of december and as the years have gone by it seems to me that that is really tapered off um now i don't seem to notice that much activity until you start getting into january you know on on these southern units around tucson but um what if you had to guess why why is that do you think it's pressure or do you think it's drought what what do you think the single most important factor for seeing later rutting activity is i don't really know i haven't been able to put my my finger on on that um, yeah, I, it, it's one of those things like what we were talking about before. It's one of those mysteries. I, I, I kind of know exactly what you're talking about and talking to a lot of old timer coos deer hunters, you know, they would talk about, you know, those December hunts, you know, seeing lots of rutting activity at the beginning of the hunt all the way through. And, and, you know, I wonder if it's drought and then, the, you know, I, I wonder how much of it is pressure and they just, you know, have gotten chased around so much that maybe once the seasons die down, they actually have a little bit of time to not be looking over their shoulder as much, you know, for hunters and maybe have a little bit more time to just get after the does and, and get the rut going. Um, it's, it's hard to say. Going back to what you were saying on the October and when you would go out and, and you know, September, early October when you were scouting for this buck, um, was he was the buck more vulnerable to your eye in the morning or more vulnerable in the evening or were they would you say 50 50 on the sightings oh well once i figured out where he was and what he was doing i mean i could almost guarantee that that i could go in there and and see him um uh, the the mornings were were probably better better odds there was a couple evenings when i sat there and and you know he didn't come out where i could see him in time before it got dark so so probably the mornings were best and you know he'd mill around feeding a little bit before he went in for the the rest of the day so so better odds were in the morning um he lived on on this little knob that he lived on had a awesome north facing slope and then really open south facing slope and occasionally he would come out on the south facing slope and and be in the sun for a little while in the mornings but majority of the time he's you know he probably spent 98 percent of his time on on the north side of that little knob there i was going to ask you about that as far as in the amount of times that you saw him, for people that are, you know, listening that are trying to learn coos deer behavior and whatnot, um, 
you know, during the summer and in, in those months, you know, September, October, and even into November when it's still very warm, how, how, what percentage of that buck's life would you bet that he spent in the shady areas and what percentage kind of in the open in the, in the sunny areas? On this particular deer? Yes. I would say in, in like a two-week span, I would see him on, the, on that south basin slope one time out of, those, out of 14 days. So, okay, so, so you could possibly deduct that either A, a five-year-old deer, or B, a big deer, or maybe even just coos deer in general are going to spend time on those north-facing shady slopes as opposed to looking for them out in the wide open. While you might see one in the wide open, you might be better off glassing into the dense cover and finding those bucks. Would that be safe to say? I, I would say on the majority, yes. Um, I mean, there are instances where I found deer that live on south-facing slopes that that stay there all the time. It, it uh, really boggles my mind sometimes where I do, do actually find some deer. But if, you know, if you're looking for the the big caliber older age class bucks i mean they are they are sneaky little boogers and you uh you need to look into the deep nasty holes and the the hidey places and thick slopes and you know if you you they they definitely hide <laughs> yeah I'll leave it at that yeah, absolutely. They have an unbelievable ability to be laying right there, and they're there the whole time, and it's, they can be very difficult to see. If 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 during that in that early season, and let's say you watch the buck from sun up to sundown, in your opinion, from what you've observed, how many times would that buck be up? and then down, either ch changing positions for shade or getting up to feed. Uh, or, or let's actually just start with once they've bedded down, okay? Mm -hmm. So they've, they've done their little 30-minute feed in the morning, and I know moon cycle, I know there's a lot of factors, but just in general, how long would that buck pretty much be down all day? Whew. For for me, that's kind of a, a loaded question, because I I have found over the last couple, I mean, just in general, watching whitetail bucks and and keeping tabs on them. Every single one is really different. Um, you know, this the the big deer that I killed that we're talking about. You know, he would kind of be up and down. A, a lot of the times in the day um but i you know where i found him was very very low hunting pressure it was way way back in like like three miles back into where i actually found him um the the buck i killed this last year in 2014 he on the october hunt would not be up in the morning at all um, you would go glass for an hour or so at, at first light, and and we could never find him. Um, and then he would get up about 9.30 or 10 o'clock and mill around for 10 minutes and then lay back down and be laid down the whole rest of the day. 
So and, and maybe not even get up uh, thirty minutes left of light. He he'd be bedded pretty much the whole time. Yeah. So he he I assume uh, was probably pretty nocturnal. Mm-hmm. And so what I hear you saying is all these deer are different. Um, but I also hear you saying that uh, they do get up and down during the day, but they don't actually move a big distance. They may get up, feed for two, three minutes, and then back down, yeah. stretch their legs, and then back down. Is that correct? Yeah. And, you know, if I, I guess maybe we should change this over a little bit to more, you know, techniques and, and what it takes to actually find them, find them because... I mean, your your number one tool for finding these deer, obviously, is having some optics and, and staying behind them all day if you can. I mean, there's, in my opinion, not a bad time to be glassing. You know, if, if you're trying to find a new deer or you're looking for one that you know about, I mean, the more time you're spending on the glass and the, I guess, the odds you know, you got to be looking if if they bedded down already and and they're pretty much set for the day. You got to be looking right where they're at in that couple, you know, two to fifteen minute window of when they're going to stand up and maybe turn around, lay back down, or move positions a little bit. Absolutely, Devin. Um, it's a great point you bring up. Um, let me ask you about the optics you do use. What what do you prefer to use for these deer? Tell me about the lineup of optics that you that you prefer. Well, right now I have two 65 millimeter Swarovski HD spotting scopes mounted together, and okay. um, I'm using the 25 to 50 variable wide angle eyepieces on them. Um, okay. I would say. 90% of the time I'm glassing with them on, on the 25 power. Um, I, I had a couple different sets of doctors before I, I got this Swarovski set up. Um, so, you know, the, basically the, the best amount of binocular you can, you can have. Um, I hunted a long time with, with a pair of just 15s. Um, you know, those are in, I mean, they got so many new optics out now. They have the 12 power Swarovskis, 10s, 15s, big eyes. But the the more high quality, better glass you can get, the better off you're going to be, in my opinion. And and I agree with you completely on that. I want to go back a little bit to these twin spotting scopes. Tell me about what what actual benefit. From a from a sitting and glassing with those twin spotting scopes, how does that give you a benefit over a 15 power, say Swarovski, uh, a binocular? The the major difference in the power on those things is for me being able to see through vegetation. Um. And and when you say that, are you looking for ear flicking? Are you looking for black noses? Are you looking for tips of antler? Yeah, all, so, all of the above, anything and everything. So definition from, from an ability to not just look at a hill, you want to be looking into the hill and, and be able to literally pick up anything that's there that's a deer, coos deer characteristic. For sure. So, you know, if, if you're... 
sitting on a hill and, and looking across the canyon with a pair of 10 or 12 power binoculars. I mean, you can see all the open spaces on that hillside, uh, you know. I mean, you got it pretty well covered, but back to how sneaky these big giant deer can be, they they might not be out walking around when, when you're looking. So you got to be able to look in the dark, shady holes and under trees, through trees, behind bushes. I mean, the, the whole kit and caboodle. So those those big eyes have really allowed me to just dig and tear stuff apart and and find deer that I probably wouldn't have found if I didn't have those. And and while we're on that subject, Devin, um, walk me through, let's say this is, you're glassing off a point, this is not a place where you've seen a big deer, but you're prospecting for deer, looking for a big deer, that, you know, you're, you don't know a deer's there, but you are looking for a big deer, and you're starting out in its first light. At first light, would you describe your glassing as very slow and meticulous, or are you very quick and 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 really covering the country in the first fifteen minutes of light? Uh, for me, when I first sit down somewhere, I I generally look at it with my bare eyes, and and I'll pick out you know three or five different places that that look real deary to me. You know, if if I broke it up, I'd say, well, that bench over there, that little bowl over there, um, you know, the I, I kind of break it down and look at it and go, if if I was a deer, where would I be? And I I tend to pan through those areas relatively quickly, um, you know, just looking for the obvious type deer, and then. After I kind of go through the spots that look good to me, I will, generally I try and break it up a little bit, um, but, you know, I'll, I'll quick glance everything that I can see, just looking for the obvious stuff. Um, you know, not not crazy wild fast, but but try and catch deer that are in the open and obvious right off the bat. And, you know, I'll probably do that for about an hour or so. And then I, uh, because, you know, by the time you look in the spots that I think look good to me and you kind of glance over it all good, you know, you got it pretty covered. And and then I will just sit there and start from the right edge and down and up and down and up and down and up all the way across everything you can see. Okay, so once you slow, so what you're saying is you glass in the obvious spots that your eye tells you that look like a deer's there, but then once the, the morning progresses, you're going to slow way down and you're going to start gritting and, and really trying to pick apart the, the whole base, base of the hill and the whole coverage, everything you can see. And you typically start and go from right to left, or were you just saying that as an example that from right to just, left, or do you always go right to left? Just as an example. Okay, and then you also said something about up, down, up, down. When you're gritting, I go side to side, side to side, side to side, and then, you know, down, side to side. You, I, do I hear you correct that you are gritting up and down on your sweep when you're sweeping through there? I do. I, I, I tend to go up and down. So I'll go up, okay. move to the left or right, and go down, move to the left or right, go up. And And... 
you know, we're getting detail here, but this is kind of stuff that I think people can learn from. It, are you are you taking, say, a whole north-facing slope and, and, and gridding all the way to the bottom, all the way to the top, or do you sometimes break it down in, into areas? Uh, kind of just what you feel for the day, you know, um, but you got to look at the whole hill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, some of these country you're going up on these high knobs and you got a ton of country to cover if, if you get too methodical you may not even cover the whole country in a day yeah that, you know that's a big factor with using those big binoculars that i got is i mean you can see so much country with those that there's there's days and places where i go and you know i might only glass one ridge line in that country that day um, because there's so much to look at you can't cover it all so you know some places it might take five plus trips in there to actually glass it all one time um, yeah absolutely um, it just depends on the country you're looking at mm -hmm. um, let's shift gears a little bit to um, you've been watching this deer walk me in to say, you know, a couple days before into the hunt and tell me a little bit about how the hunt went down, uh, for this 126 inch deer. Well, my, my goal and my thought when, when we find a deer that, that we like is, you know, I, I want to be set up first light on opening day to be basically pulling the trigger on the, on that animal. Um, you know the the majority of the hunt for me is actually not when I have a tag. Um, when you have the tag in your pocket, for me, that's five percent of. Well, I don't know if you could say it's five percent, but that's a small portion of the actual hunt for me. Finding the deer, figuring them out, where they live, and and to be set up right there to kill them the first chance you have is is my kind of goal with these little deer so to the actual hunt with with my tag on, on that October rifle hunt I actually because the deer was so far in I packed in there on Monday and um, I set up a, a little one-man tent across the canyon from where I saw the deer 98 percent of the time and, um, you know, I, I hid my tent and I could crawl out of my tent and in five steps be to my tripod and, and looking at that hill where that deer was at. And I watched him all day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday before the hunt even opened. On Thursday, I actually had him bed down 250 yards across the canyon from me all day there on Thursday. So it was... Uh, for me, it was a pretty sure thing that come Friday morning, he was in trouble. And um, Friday morning, why I didn't really sleep Thursday night, I basically laid there, <laughs> laid there awake all night. And I don't know what time I ended up crawling out of my tent, but it was probably an hour or so before, you know, even first light where you could see anything. And I sat there for a long, long time just trying to, actually calm myself down because um, I was on cloud nine just waiting for for things to go down and 
it finally got light enough to glass and I glassed the the couple spots. He he kind of had you know even on that one hillside he had three general spots on there where where he hung out the most. So I looked in those spots and he wasn't there and I kind of glassed the hillside real quick and couldn't find him and I kind of started freaking out thinking maybe I had camped too close or you know what happened but I I, I knew he had to be there because I had been there for four days already and uh, so I just had to calm myself down and I started on the upper right corner and I started gridding the hillside apart and I got about halfway through the hillside and ended up glassing one of the little bucks that that he hung out with all the time and was looking at that deer and and this big deer's head popped out of the bushes they were just in some pretty deep brush and um Jevin how far was the buck I assume the night before on Thursday night you bedded the buck how far had he moved from the night uh from the last time you saw him till where you picked up the little buck and where he ended up popping out they they were they were just straight up from where they had been the evening before. So Thursday evening, they were 250 yards straight across from me. And that morning when I found them there, they were 500 yards away. Um, but they were, you know, just straight up from where they were the night before, but at, clear at the top of that little knob that they were on. So, But definitely a good lesson for coos deer hunters in that, if you're not seeing the buck and and there's not people pressure and you just need to keep looking cuz more than likely they're right there would you agree with that yeah for sure and even if there is some people pressure i've seen bucks run out of a canyon and you know the next day you glass back and he's right back in his home spot mm-hmm. um and so that i think that's a good lesson for people to learn and, and to listen to, and I, I've seen it hunting with Dar so much, you know, and especially big bucks. It just seems like they're so, you know, if you believe in the pattern and believe in your scouting, you can really um, hone in on these bucks. Mm-hmm. So you found the buck and moved over. Did you have to move at all, or did you, were you able to shoot them from your position? Well, I, I had my gun all benched up already the, the day before, you know, expecting to find him at, at first light and shoot him right across the canyon there at a little chip shot and now he was you know 500 yards away and at the top of the hill so I had to adjust my setup with my rifle a little bit and I actually had buck fever so bad that uh, I can imagine he uh you know the top of the hill was was pretty brushy and some big trees up there and so I got on him with my gun and and was watching him and he went behind some trees and came out and just kind of walked across there were there was three openings on the top of that hill and he walked across the first one and and didn't stop so I didn't shoot and then he came out in the second one and and you know it was almost like he knew I was there because he would walk and then stop behind the trees then he walked across the second opening and stopped behind the trees and then he he started feeding again and you know his head came out and his neck came out and I was getting ready to shoot and just waiting for him to take that one more step and wouldn't you know it he lifted up his head and just walked across that third opening 
<laughs> and uh, so I I didn't I didn't shoot at him, and then I got a little bit worried because the whole rest of that knob I, I couldn't see, but I knew that they were going to be hanging out there from all the time bow hunting him and watching him, you know. So I I ended up grabbing my rifle and and I ran across that canyon. Um, there was a a little saddle between my hill and and the hill that he was on and i ran down through that saddle and and up the other side and kind of around the the corner without getting into details but i i popped out and and looked up the hill where i thought they were going to be and and he was standing there at i don't know it was 125 or 130 yards or so and i knelt down behind my tripod and the rest is history that's awesome. Was he aware that you were there? Was he on to you or no? No, they, he didn't have a clue. Yeah, that's awesome. And he, so he ended up being 126 and in change gross as a three by three with eye guards. Yeah, just a beautiful typical buck. Um, did he have any extra points at all? Or was just perfect clean typical. No, he's a, a perfect clean typical. That's about as big of three point. Three by three buck, you could possibly shoot. Yeah, I don't think I'll be able to top top him with with that. You know, no yeah. cheaters, yeah. no nothing. And what were his twos? Was he like nine and seven or nine and eight? What were his What were his G twos and G threes? Uh, I think they're all a little over nine inches. Oh wow, the twos and th- the threes are over nine as well. Uh huh. That's beautiful, and so he was probably what about fourteen inches wide. Uh, fifteen and an eighth, I think, on the inside. Beautiful. With, That's just with nine. I remember nineteen and six on the main beams. I think. Uh, um, crazy mass, you know. He's real heavy and just. Uh, I mean, he he took the first place in the uh, two thousand twelve Boone and Crockett Awards period for the typical category. That's um, awesome. So I am. I am tickled to death with it. That's awesome. And and that's your biggest personal deer? That is my biggest personal buck, yes. And, uh, you know, what are some of the other bucks, just general class? I mean, have you shot a handful of bucks over 100 inches? Or what? What? what what's some of the other bucks you have shot? I have this big one we've been talking about. I have two other bucks that, that make the all-time Boone and Crockett book. Um, both of them are around 118 gross inches. Uh, one nets 111, the other one 113. Um, I have another 4x4 with eye guards that missed the all-time book by a quarter inch. Um, you know, and a, a handful of, of really nice 107 to 113 gross type deer that... Um, you know, are are big, big giant bucks. Uh, my wife's got a velvet buck that she shot with her bow. That on the day she killed it was around 119 gross. Um, she's got a handful of other big bucks, and then this this one she killed just this last year with her muzzleloader is a you know a total gross inches on him is 128 and and three eighths i think if you just add it up like sci would and goodness what what's his main frame is he a typical or a a, a nasty non-typical he is a 
four by four with eye guards, and then he has matching forks in both of his G3s. Oh man! Uh, and and so you've been around a lot of big bucks. Um, out of all those bucks you just mentioned, how many of those bucks are bucks that you've seen prior to the season? I don't need an exact number, but on a, on a you know, give me a percentage. Are most all of those bucks scouted out bucks that you knew were there and that you have a plan and you efficiently go after those bucks? Total out of all of them that we killed. I mean, when I first yeah. when I first started hunting, you know, we would. Well, I'm talking about, you know, some of the better bucks. Are most all of the better bucks, you know, say 105 or better, are most all of those bucks that you have really scouted and, and had a game plan and, and worked on killing that specific buck? The the ones that I have killed, I would say, yeah. Okay. Um, the ones that my wife have killed, she always gives me a hard time about, you know, well, getting out and scouting for you. you know, by the time my tag comes, you you know you killed most of the ones you knew about with yourself or, <laughs> or somebody else, and and I get you know the the end of the the straw there with her. But um, it I don't know. She's got some fantastic luck, and we tend to tend to pull them out of the woodwork when when she's hunting her her that big butt that she just killed. We did not know about that deer until the day I found him. Um, and and did you find him during the season then? We did. It was the the wow. third day of her hunt, and um, we uh, well, we I I had a big buck picked out for her, but a guy ended up killing it on the on the October hunt. Um, so we were we were going after a, a different buck. We had spent a couple of days looking for him, and had some bad weather and stuff just kind of mess us up. And there was a a chunk of country that I had always wanted to go look in and I just hadn't had the time to do it. And that morning I, I told her I had had enough of looking for the buck that, that we were after and ended up going in this new chunk of country. And the, the third draw that we ended up looking in, that buck was, was standing there and, you know, it was nine o'clock in the morning and he was up. I don't know what he was doing, but, uh, we came around this little corner, and I just looked up the draw with my bare eyes and, and saw him. And um, so as much as I'd like to say we, we had him patterned and, and knew about him, we didn't. But, you know, it, it goes goes to find, finding these big deer. I mean, obviously, you got to have them a lot of time to put into it. Um, you know, you got to kind of think outside of the box and, and look in places that are, you know, maybe getting overlooked or don't have a lot of hunting pressure for a couple years. Um, you know, one of the major factors, in my opinion, is just having a knack for where to look. Um, my two closest hunting buddies, they, they always tell me all the time, well, you know, why did you go look in there or, you know, what in the heck were you ever doing over there? And my answer is, I don't know. It just looked good to me and I went in there and looked. So definitely, you know, the more time you can look, the more places you can look and, you know, being, I mean, the number one thing is being persistent. Just because you went in glass somewhere once doesn't mean there's not a big giant buck in there. 
you might have to go there. For instance, my 2014 buck, um, I saw him in very early on when he was still in velvet. I just got about a 30-second look at him before he topped over a ridge, and I... I think we went in there 10 or 12 times before we saw him again and saw him hard horned. He had rubbed his velvet and then we went in there another three or four times again looking for him and, and couldn't find him. The next time, so I saw him in velvet. We saw him hard horned right after the velvet stage. The next time I think we saw him was the the day before the hunt started. Thursday before the hunt and uh, ended up shooting him on on Friday got got lucky and and that buck was was one that wasn't like anything else you know I, I mentioned to you before he at uh, first light was always bedded down um, never moved during prime time in the morning about 9 30 or 10 o'clock he would get up and and maybe move beds and if if you didn't know or you weren't looking right where he was at, you you dang sure wouldn't see him. Um, so just a, a sneaky, sneaky, dirty old buck. <laughs> exactly. Sounds like a great buck. And, and um, if you had to pick a time other than, say, the first hour and last hour of light, if you had to pick a specific one-hour time, and I know you and I and the guys that are really into Kuzer, they gla- we glass all day, but if you had to say... I'm going to glass first hour, last hour, and one other hour. When would that be? For me, it would probably be a even toss-up between like 10, 11, or, you know, 1 or 2 or 2 to 3 o'clock, somewhere in there. You know, it's funny um, you say that because I'm the same way. That 10 to 11, I don't know what it is, but... You know, it just seems like those bucks always get up around 10 o'clock, 10.30, somewhere in there. No matter what the moon's doing, no matter what time of year it is, it seems like 10 o'clock, it just seems just those deer get up then. Um, So it's very interesting that you say that. You know, we've just scratched the surface here today talking about coos deer, and I, I look forward to having you on again um because there's just so much to talk about with these deer and and um you know we've already learned a lot about um how you do things and um how methodical you are and and you can hear the passion that you have for these deer Mm -hmm. um so i applaud you for that and i look forward to having you on again to talk about other things because i mean we've got moon cycles we've got you know temperature we've got you know rutting we've got all sorts of stuff to talk about Thanks for being with us. Yep, yep. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye.